the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Martin Luther King Day edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com and at danproft and at danproftshow on social media. On uh, Martin Luther King Day, I like to play some excerpts from some of my favorite speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, one of them is from his famous street sweeper speech, which he gave at the tender age of 27 at Holt Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, in which he offered, among other things, this. Even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like... Handel and Beethoven compose music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. And um, in addition to uh, exemplifying somebody educated in the Western canons, which has fallen out of style, Shakespeare handle. It was, uh, what's the thing that's uh, really attendant to those remarks? Agency. People have agency, including black Americans. Which brings us to this most excellent piece that was authored uh, in the Wall Street Journal by Bob Woodson and Joshua Mitchell. Josh Mitchell, a uh, academic at Georgetown University and uh, the Claremont Center for the American Way of Life. And Bob Woodson, of course, a civil rights leader who dates back to the 60s. And he is the founder and president of the Woodson Center, author of the recently released Lessons from the Least of These, the Woodson Principles, and founder of the 1776 Project 2. Bob Woodson joins us now. Bob, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Pleased to be back with you, Dan. So um, this piece that uh, you co-authored for the Wall Street Journal really focuses on that same topic that was implicit in King's remarks there, which is the agency of the human being, the agency of the black American. Uh, Speak to that uh, per your op-ed. Well, right now, there's such emphasis on systemic racism, inequity, inclusion. Everything is focused outward. Dr. King said that we must reach down into the deep, dark regions of our soul and sign in indelible ink our own emancipation proclamation, that nobody would or should do more for you than you're willing to do for yourself. And so... There was a great emphasis back in the day about what actions we are to take to determine our destiny and our march forward. It was never wallowing in guilt or wallowing in self-pity. 
nor was a demand that we be given um, uh, uh, a, a, a winning hand if we're sitting at the gambling table. King emphasized personal responsibility, that the victimizer might have knocked you down, but it's the victim's responsibility to get up. There was just a consistent message that we are the determiners of our destiny. And right now, that's all being assaulted. It's been hijacked by the progressive left, radical left, and they really are using the moral authority of the civil rights movement and the conditions faced by blacks. They really are using it as a to as a political weapon. It has nothing to do with pursuing justice for black Americans. Nothing to do with it. How do you react to this? Is this a positive development or is this uh, the problem that you're identifying? Giant Food, which is a big uh grocery store chain, 3,100, uh, 164 uh, stores, 3,100 products, will uh, now use shelf labels to inform shoppers of products that are offered by businesses that are women-owned, black-owned, Asian-Indian-owned, Hispanic-owned, LGBTQ-owned, Asian-Pacific-owned. Is that sort of uh, identification, racial identification of the company that made a product on your grocery store shelf? Is that is that important? Does that help a racial oh, reconciliation? That is really sick. You can never generalize about any group of people. And when you do, it is always those who are who are poor who lose when you get to identity politics. Someone asked me in, on this earlier broadcast, if Dr. King were alive today, what what would he say? And I said, he would say, stop helping us. Just leave us to hell alone. Don't pity us. You know, I, I would rather, Dan, confront an honest bigot than to confront the kind of actions that are coming from guilty white people today who think they are victim signaling by offering all kinds of special dispensations to black. It's, and, and to those black who are celebrating their inferiority, they are to be pitied. They are the real pathetic ones out here. Are those blacks celebrating their inferiority? You describe it. Would that include academics uh, or writers like uh, Ibram Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates to just provide two examples? No, they're, they're outright race hustlers. No, they know better. But it's profitable. You know, there are enough guilty white people writing um, large checks for people, for, for blacks like them to come and beat up on them. I told people that the two enemies of liberty today are self-flagellating guilty white people and rich, angry blacks with their victims' books. Mm. Those are the two groups that are, are holding us back as a society. But it's not enough to, um, to whine and complain about what they're doing. What we're doing at the Woodson Center in 1776 is that we're mobilizing of black scholars and activists and others to push back against this pity narrative. And we're doing so with inspirational stories of, 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 that tell the tales of how blacks achieve when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. And so I think it's important to inform people, not just with ideas, but stories and parables and examples from the past. Another major strategy is that we are mobilizing the voices of low-income blacks to speak for themselves. The elites say, for instance, that as a part of pursuing social justice, we need to defund the police. Well, a Pew survey found that 82% of blacks who are suffering from the absence of police do not support defunding of the police. Only 62% of blacks surveyed 
answered that racism is a is a principal barrier that's holding them back. They're not so that the voices of the people, everyday black folks, are not uh, are not the ones that you see uh, represented on television by Coates and some of these other people. And so what we're doing at the Woodson Center is trying to let those voices speak for themselves. And that way, we hope to undermine the moral authority of some of these so-called spokespersons. Well, one of the other things, and and I I think this is uh, also enshrined in the Woodson Principles, your book, Lessons from the Least of These, the Woodson Principles, uh, the the Woodson Principles uh, are some of the tried and true principles that uh, really uh, transcend race, aren't they? They really do. I mean, when you look at uh, when Dr. King, what he represented in terms of agency, the foundation that enabled blacks to with, to, to survive slavery and discrimination, they, it was done on the foundation of the same principles that our founders said, of, of personal responsibility, of family, of faith, of hard work, a willingness to be agents of your own uplift. Um, and these are the, uh, the foundational principles that enabled blacks to survive uh, uh, 30 years or uh, 10 years of the Depression. You heard me say that when, the, when racism was enshrined in law, we had no political representation. We were 40% unemployed, yet we had the highest marriage rate of any group. Elderly people could walk safely in our community. So self-discipline based upon our Judeo-Christian faith was the foundation that delivered us from slavery and discrimination. And yet these are the very bourgeois values that the left is assaulting while they propose to, pur- purport to be standing for blacks. But in fact, they have migrated uh, to, to attack these very fundamental principles that enable blacks, uh, blacks to survive and to thrive in the face of oppression. They are being denigrated by the left. As you see them burning Bibles, Black Lives Matter is burning Bibles in, in Portland, Oregon, desecrating the Christian cross as a symbol of white supremacy, uh, taking down the signs of, uh, of, of, of Frederick Douglass in, in New York, in Rochester, New York. And so what we hope to do at the Woodson Center is bring attention to these moral inconsistencies and also perhaps shame some of the civil rights leaders for allowing these uh, these the, these actions to occur. When uh, we come back, I want to uh, continue that conversation about uh, faith and family as that plays a role in uh, this discussion about uh, the civil rights uh, issues in 2021 America. More with Bob Woodson, founder and, princi- and president of the Woodson Center, author of the recently released Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles. We'll be right back with more. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Bob Woodson. He's the founder and president of the Woodson Center. He's the author of the recently released Lessons from the Least of These, the Woodson Principles. 
He's also the founder of the 1776 Project, which seeks to uh, extol the achievements of black Americans. And as we were talking about before the break, focus on agency, personal responsibility, faith and family. I want to get, uh, Bob, your handle on where you think we are at in this moment. Uh, Shelby Steele, your friend and colleague, uh, recently gave an interview on Fox News in which he he described the moment he thinks we're in now, which is that there has been a real paradigm shift, particularly for younger black Americans, in thinking about this idea of agency versus victimhood. Uh, Listen. There is beginning to be, certainly in black America, a counterpoint to 60 years of, of rather tired and exhausted liberalism. Yep. Uh, there, is, there are young people seriously considering other ideas now, uh, looking, to the, looking beyond the gestures of protest and toward the idea of responsibility as an energy, a transformative energy. Uh, and that is a, that's a wonderful thing. And I, I, I'm sad to see Trump depart. Because uh, I, I think he was he was the right guy to, to sort of make space for that that new point of view to emerge. Uh, but it will emerge. And at this point, uh, that job is done. It will emerge and, and will, I think, become more and more a part of our politics. Bob, are you as optimistic as Shelby that that new vo- viewpoint will emerge? I really am. And there are some signs, the very fact that that despite what the the left said about Trump and his attitude of, towards race, he garnered more uh, black votes in uh, than any Republican has in 40 years. Um, particularly black men were uh, 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 attracted to him, and also other uh, Hispanic votes. And and when we look at the vote in 2018 in uh, Florida, a gubernatorial race where DeSantis ran against um, Gillum, the black uh, candidate, I think he was the mayor of Tampa. Um, And DeSantis, the Republicans, won by 32,000 votes, and that's because 100,000 low-income blacks um, split their ticket and voted for DeSantis because of his position in support of school vouchers. So even though... Gillum, the black candidate, brought in Oprah Winfrey and President Obama. A hundred thousand low-income blacks voted against Obama and Oprah and voted for their children, and they set aside the, the the issue of race. And instead, that's a very promising action. Very, very promising. Now, here's the. It seems to me the challenge. We were talking before the break about faith and family. You were invoking that and in the, uh, the the radical left's uh, anti-Christian perspective. It's it, the question, I guess, becomes: Is can you win some of the political discussions if you lose the institutions? And I point to this survey out that finds seventy-four percent of pastors agree their congregation would welcome a sermon on racial reconciliation. That's a 16% decrease from uh, just four years ago. The idea that one in four pastors of congregations don't think that their congregation would welcome a a, a substantive discussion on race and racial reconciliation, um, that's troubling, isn't it? Well, it is troubling, except uh, there has been, um, I think, a separation of these young people from some of these pastors, um, I think it, it reflects, when you look at, uh, it reflects the attitude of these pastors, not their congregations. 
I really don't. I think a lot of those young people that the Shelby is talking about, they're not in the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not in the church. But I mean, but, 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 but is that a problem? You know, so then where does your value system come from, particularly with the state of the family, not just in the black community, but writ large? No, it's true. But, you know, it's, as, as, a, as a pastor friend of mine said, back in the day, uh, everybody, every black person was a Christian, and the church is where people happen to meet. You were a Christian even if you never went to church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of these churches... Uh, uh, you know, lost the, 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 the ability to go out and teach Jesus to them, and that's why they're losing young people. But the churches that are uh, going back, they are growing, and they may be a minority, but they're, they're moving in the right direction. So there's a push and pull in the black community, but Shelby is right. Um, the, 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 it's, it's looking very promising in terms of what's, what's, what's churning uh, in the community. Uh, you uh, mentioned, uh, just sticking on the topic of faith and family, you mentioned before the break that bourgeois values, we're talking about the Woodson principles uh, as per your new book. Uh, the, uh, the the problem with uh, those uh, mainly white leftists who don't preach what they practice in their own household and uh, exposing that, uh, you know, sort of having uh, black Americans, particularly young black Americans, sort of see that for what it is so that they get the hustle that's going on. Yeah, but again, you don't go into a black community and say, uh, I, I haven't seen any of these leftists stand up even in the, in the church and say that we don't think men are uh, fathers are necessary mm-hmm. or the nuclear family. I don't see that message. In fact, in fact, most of those Black Lives Matter uh, banners are in liberal white churches more mm-hmm. than they are in the black community. I don't see a bunch of Black Lives Matter banners in, in black communities. I see them on liberal white community. When I see when I drive home on 16th Street um, to northwest, and I see uh, most of the people out there are whites waving the Black Lives Matter flag. They aren't blacks. Right, and and so is is that part of what you know people are seeing, especially younger people who are more perhaps attuned to this, seeing and saying, "Wait a second, you know what I mean?" That they they sort of like, "Wait, yeah. wait, who who is representing me? You're telling me what it's like to be authentically black, you know, you uh, white liberal uh, liberal arts college, uh, you know, a person of privilege." Well, I saw something last about three weeks ago that just is seared in my memory, man. It is during the Trump rally. It wasn't the parade, rather. It wasn't this last one that erupted into violence, but the one before. There was a black, young black woman walking down the street, pushing her toddler in a, um, uh, a stroller, and a white woman with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on violently assaulted this woman, Mm -hmm. and she had to be restrained by others. I also saw a black woman uh, being assaulted by four Antifa thugs to try to wrestle her American flag away from her and dragged her to the ground by her hair. Of course, it wasn't reported, but where is the damn outrage from the civil rights community or the congressional black? Where is the outrage or is this an extension of the of, of the cancel culture? You talking about putting um, uh, uh, political uh, uh, issues ahead of of black interests? That's 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 a, a perfect demonstration 
of how how about the decline that the civil rights movement, the fact that this could happen and it doesn't provoke any outrage. When we come back with the Woodson Center's Bob Woodson, I want to talk more about the importance of connecting all Americans with the history of black Americans, but particularly black Americans. More with Bob Woodson right up to this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were speaking with Bob Woodson about uh, the observance of Martin Luther King Day today. And, um, Bob, uh, the importance of connecting uh, black Americans with their history. I mean, one of your mantras is to extol achievement. So everybody knows about uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the early 20th century. And everybody knows about the accomplishments of black Americans in the worst of times in America for black Americans. Some of these individuals, uh, we, we, we uh, uh, observe Martin Luther King and all that he meant to this country. But do they really understand the history of it? Do they understand what he said and what his perspective was and what he argued and and how that would should be translated into policy and the way we organize society and the way that we deal with one another? I just wonder how, how good a job you think we're doing with that. We're not doing a good job. The very fact that you played the sermon that he wrote, we need to hear that plus. The the the, the uh, speech or the, uh, that my favorite King talk was his letter from a Birmingham jail. Yeah, when he was speaking about the contradictions of what we are facing now and from what we faced back then, and he said, and I'll paraphrase it, that the greatest stumbling block to black progress is not the White Citizens Council, but the, or the KKK. It is the white moderates. That lukewarm acceptance from people of goodwill is more difficult to tolerate an outright rejection of people of ill will. And and I feel that's what we're confronting today. Give me an old-fashioned bigot <laughs> than some white liberal who is feeling guilty about being superior to me and wants to give me special help, like in Oregon, where they're talking about requiring all citizens to wear masks except for blacks or you know, you've seen that at ivy league schools too i think it was cornell uh, vaccines will be mandatory when they're available for college students except for black americans because you know of the tuskegee experiments exactly the biggest enemy that black americans face are not bigots because bigotry is external it is traitors it is moral traitors it is people who look like them and pimp their their pain these are the, the, the officials like Ray Nagin, the, the disgraced mayor of New Orleans, who's now serving time in prisons, who was stuffing his pockets while people were dying uh, uh, in Katrina in the Ninth Ward. Mm-hmm. Bill Jefferson, who also from Louisiana, who went to jail for stealing money. Nine members of his family who were in city and state government were, were, were prosecuted for stealing money that was intended to go to low-income black girls who had babies to help them. Instead, they were putting these money. But you see, there's no moral outrage 
about these traitors, or Kwame Kirkpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit, who's doing a lot of time, and 40 of his cronies that literally raped the coffers of, of pension funds that were supposed to go to black city workers. And these funds have been diminished because these traitors have stolen them. But we don't talk about that. This is the... the white, I'm sorry to interrupt. We don't but, talk about it. The, the, no, when white Democrats commit crimes or unethical, we expect Democrats to distance themselves, and they do. Republicans the same. But when, when black elected officials do the same, they're silent. This was uh, one of the points uh, your friend and mine, who uh, recently passed away, the great uh, George Mason University economics professor Walter Williams, made uh, uh, looking at uh, the number of black Americans in public office compared to, to the, you know, fi- over the last 50 years, compared from 50 years ago to today. And you have exponentially more black Americans in public offices. And yet the situation across so many sort of quality of life metrics is so much worse so what's ha- there has to be something going on. We have more representation and, in some respects, less opportunity, uh, less uh, public safety in some communities, less educational opportunities, and, and by extension, achievement. And you know, and, and and so how do you how do you reconcile that sort of white leftist? Was his question. Well, these are the qu- troubling questions that I bring all up all the time. I'm about to engage in some discussions where I, where when people talk about the biggest problem, problem facing black Americans is systemic racism. I say, well, then explain to me if racism were the biggest culprit, then why are blacks suffering in cities run by their own people for the last 40 or 50 years? Mm-hmm. And if you, the biggest income gap, Dan, is not between whites and blacks, as they always talk about. The biggest income gap is between low-income whites and upper, I mean, blacks and upper-income blacks. If race were the sole culprit, why are not all blacks suffering equally? He is Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, founder of the 1776 Project as well, author of the recently released Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles. Bob, thanks for your time uh, and this extended conversation. Very illuminating, as always, on this uh, Martin Luther King Day. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Always appreciate you. Back to the Dan Prof Show. That was uh, some conversation with Bob Woodson, wasn't it? Uh, he's uh, an incredible guy. Switching gears now, talk a little bit about the inauguration. Uh, of course, uh, I, like most everyone, wants the inauguration to come off without a hitch. Uh, no violence, no incidents, as seamlessly as possible. Certainly that goes the same for any you know, potential unrest in state capitals that's been reported Uh, I'm all for the FBI doing whatever they're doing to monitor chatter, to try to interdict anybody that has violent intentions in in D.C. or anywhere else. Okay, but did you see the presence of armored vehicles in D.C., some of the pictures over the weekend? Does it strike you that twenty five thousand National Guardsmen plus Capitol Police, that uh, that sort of military presence is required? Or is there something else going on, something in addition to securing the nation's capital for the inauguration, something else happening. 
It's funny. I, I thought the left was aghast at the concept of a military parade. That's sort of what it looks like they were setting up for over the weekend. Before you answer that question, maybe just say, well, erring on the side of caution, out of an abundance of caution. This is the over-the-top presence we want just to send the message in advance that uh, nothing is going to be tolerated. You're not going to be able to do anything nefarious if that was your intent and trying to, uh, you know, discourage any bad behavior. But then you have to think about it in the context of some other thing. For example, this story over the weekend that was hyped initially, at least, by political hacks masquerading as journalists like Jim Shooter over at CNN. U.S. Capitol Police attempted to pass through U.S. Capitol Police arrested a Virginia man as he attempted to pass through a police checkpoint in downtown Washington Friday with a with fake inaugural credentials, a loaded handgun and over 500 rounds of ammunition. Except that's not true. The actual story uh, from a reporter for a conservative news outlet who actually took the time to get information before making declarations, including talking to the guy's wife, that man who drove into D.C. with a Glock and 500 rounds of ammo. His wife tells me he was a private security guard and hired to help secure the grounds. He's charged with carrying all that firepower into D.C. without a proper permit. And since uh, the D.C. press corps was treating this guy like Timothy McVeigh, Wesley Allen Beeler felt the need to publicly address his arrest. I was literally just trying to go to work. I was one block away asking for the cop for directions. And it blew up into this whole domestic terrorist thing. Like, just because things are happening out there doesn't mean that's what I'm trying to do. I forgot my firearm was in the truck. I was trying to make it to work. You can literally go to the National Mall and ask any of the security, but you can go ask them. Show, ask them to show the placard that they were given because that's what was given to me. And now all I was trying to do was show him what I had and ask how I get around the blockades because I got lost. Everything's blocked off, and I'm just trying to make money for my family. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. Right. He was uh, hired as a private security guard to help protect the Capitol during the inaugural private security contractor for MVP Protective Services, and he was running late. Uh, the D.C. press corps has the same standard of the Twitter blue check mafia, as uh, highlighted last week by the story we brought you, the retired Chicago firefighter who was identified as the uh, individual who allegedly killed a Capitol Police officer with a fire extinguisher, except they got the wrong guy, the Twitter mob. But that doesn't mean they weren't didn't, they were unhappy to make his life hell or that they weren't indifferent to making his life hell that they got it wrong. They don't care. Neither does Jim Shooter at CNN. Another example of what I mean, Philip Mudd, who is a former CIA analyst. He's a counterterrorism analyst now for CNN. Listen to this riff about uh, his concerns. And again, start to see if a picture is starting to form in your mind of what may actually be afoot here. I've got to get on an airplane myself in about two weeks. And I had a friend of mine today, Don, text me. I, I, I double mask when I travel. It is a paper mask and a fabric mask. And my friend said, because you're on CNN, you got to wear a hat. And that had never occurred to me before. I got to go to an airport and, and be concerned. I'm not on the Capitol. I'm in an airport in Charlotte, North Carolina, that somebody's going to come up and berate me, maybe attack me. I think, to, to, to be clear, Don, that in some ways we are focused too much on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is representative of what is happening in America. Americans are saying, look, civil discourse doesn't matter to me. A country that was built on immigrants doesn't matter to me. Immigrants are not welcome in this country, despite the fact that I came, and myself included, came from a family of immigrants. I think the most disturbing aspect of the last four years in America is not the president. It's the president has exposed in America that most of us, and I mean more than 50 percent, are uncomfortable with. 
And that America is showing up at the Capitol. It's not about Donald Trump. It's about America, Don. Is that right? This is Donald Trump's America. And, of course, the implication, fairly clear, that these are Donald Trump's supporters. This is who supports Donald Trump, somebody who would throw a fire extinguisher at a Capitol police officer. It's funny uh, that, uh, not ha-ha funny, funny sad, funny pathetic, funny disingenuous, that Philip Mudd would um, identify this America that he sees now at this point. Because I'm uh, old enough to remember uh, three years ago when uh, someone other than Donald Trump had this to say. If you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. Is that what you're talking about, Philip Mudd, in terms of having to wear a hat in the airport because someone might accost you because you work for CNN? That's the America Donald Trump created. Maxine Waters have anything to do with that? So it seems to me what you see playing out is uh, the D.C. press corps taking this opportunity, despite what some say, to say the 500 people who or how many ever it was who assaulted the Capitol are, in fact, representative of the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump, that nothing existed in America with respect to the fraying of our social fabric prior to Donald Trump, that uh, the left has been conciliatory and constructive for the last four years in opposing Donald Trump, protecting our republic. But it is violent right wing extremists, white supremacists who propose the greatest threat to our republic. And uh, those 500 people or so, how many ever it was, represent that greatest threat. The threat is domestic, not foreign. It's the continuation of the left's projection onto Trump voters, conservatives, who they are, and the never-ending effort to gaslight people through the agitpop funneled and pummeled via their communication channels and the talking heads that populate them. So, yes, uh, safety is a part of it, but there's uh, something additional going on, it seems to me, in advance of Wednesday's inauguration. The propagation of the story they continue to tell, regardless of the facts, in spite of their conduct, and certainly without regard to any concern about uh, the implications of this hypocrisy. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and the talented Remy over at Reason.com has done it again, this time delivering a COVID parody classic with a little help from Shaggy. Weird Al has nothing on this guy. Yo, man. Yo. Open up, man. Yo, what you want, man? My constituents just caught me. You let them catch you? I don't know how I let this happen. Wait, where? The place next door, you know? Wait, I thought you ordered all the restaurants to close. Man, I don't know what to do. Just say it wasn't you. All right. Voter came and then they caught me red-handed eating at the place next door. Were there a lot of people there? Picture this. It was not that vacant. Like a hundred could I forget that I had Vandal Indo gatherings? Just a prime example of a really big hypocrisy. You don't understand what not. 
just like other creatures. Rules do not apply to us, we are the leaders. Borders can't be trusted to be indoor eaters. They are more contagious after all their mouth breathers. Just tell them it's important to follow all the law. How any violation might kill a grandma. Why you do what you want, even pardon in laws. Mr. Mayor, how would you prefer your foie gras? Donated. Sir, we saw you at a party. It wasn't me. Eating at the French laundry. It wasn't me. You even had the clam chowder. It wasn't me. Sir, we got you on camera. It wasn't me. You said we can't be super spreading. It wasn't me. So I missed my brother's wedding. It wasn't me. You jailed a barber for hairdressing. I have a wedding. This is getting upsetting. Border came in and they call me red-handed. Eating at the place next door. That guy is so good. Uh, please do share it. I tweeted out at Dan Prof Show, Remy. And um, serious note that he points up with the hypocrisy, uh, a uh, anecdote to share. I thought this was uh, particularly good and uh, representative of of uh, a perspective that uh, is easy to understand. Minneapolis, Mark Royce and his wife began 2020 with three boxing clubs and a yoga studio. All four businesses were flourishing. Two of the boxing clubs were on the market as they sought to downsize. By the end of 2020, after months of severe shutdowns imposed by Governor Walls there, they had one barely surviving boxing gym. The yoga studio was squeaking by. They had to offload the other two boxing gyms last July because they... Uh, just to get out of the leases, which were $10,000 a month each. He uh, told the Epoch Times, the problem we face here is we have a large loan, and the loan is tied to our home. Um, He uh, said, Mr. Royce, I'm going to teach classes whether the governor says it's okay or not. This is the only way we can make a living. This is what our business model is. Technically, we could do virtual classes still, but you can't hit a virtual boxing bag. Right. I'm fed up, and I'm done, he went on to say. I have nothing left. They've taken everything from us. They destroyed our business this year. They did. Not a virus. The virus didn't do this. This is Dan Proff. Tell me why I don't like money. Tell me why I don't like money. Tell me why I don't like, I don't like, I don't like money. Tell me why I don't like, I don't like, I don't like money. Tell me why I don't like money. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Uh, if we just move to the suburbs or the exurbs, small-town America, we can avoid the ugliness of the culture war that rocks urban America, right? Well, um, can you outrun Netflix? Did you see this from uh, Netflix? Ibram Kendi, who is the anti-racist, racist professor formerly of... Uh, American you now he's up at Boston you the um, author of how to be an anti-racist which has become one of the bibles of the identitarian left for the purpose of racial sensitivity read listen indoctrination training in schools in corporate boardrooms and the like well Netflix has now getting in on the Abram Kendi act they're going to uh, do a series release a series of uh animated shorts in the form of musical animated shorts, actually, of his children's book, Anti-Racist Baby. Yeah. 
which, for example, includes um, this confess when being racist. Nothing disrupts racist more than when we confess the racist ideas that we sometimes express. As um, Thomas Chatterton Williams tweeted about this, he's a contributing writer for New York Times Magazine. My toddler doesn't understand the concept of confessing anything at all. Five minutes ago, as an attorney in his moral universe, he believes his stuffed animal is alive. But as you know from listening to this show, Ibram Kendi's perspective and those of so many of his uh, fellow travelers, the Robin D'Angelo's of the world, the Ta-Nehisi Coates of the world, the identitarian politicians, is uh, to be white is to be racist. And the way that you become an anti-racist is you spend your life doing what, for example, one offering from his children's book suggests spend your life confessing for something that is beyond your control. Had nothing to do with your behavior, only your skin color. Another good topic as we observe Martin Luther King Day. For more on this and whether or not you can outrun the cultural fight before us, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Pulliam, contributing editor to Law and Liberty, who blogs at misruleoflaw.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Well, you live in uh, East Tennessee. I read from your piece at The Federalist, and uh, so you're down there in Dean Dillon land, good old uh, heart of uh, country music, uh, conservative. And so that's one of those places where if you move to East Tennessee, you don't have any problems and you don't have to deal with all this identitarian indoctrination, right? Well, that's what we were looking for. My wife and I are refugees from progressive politics in Austin, Texas. And in my case, I was a refugee prior to that from progressive politics in Southern California. So when we were looking for our final retirement destination, we looked long and hard for an area that we thought would be most impervious to the trends of wokeness that are destroying cities across America. And when we landed here about a year and a half ago, and we love the area, don't get me wrong, but we are more sensitive than many of the natives are who have lived here all their life about these incipient signs of progressive activism. And in a community where 71% of the voters voted for President Trump, you would expect to see conservative hegemony across the board in nonpartisan offices, in appointed positions, bureaucracies, et cetera. And we're finding that that's not the case. So the piece I wrote in The Federalist is basically a wake-up call, a Paul Revere's raid, that we need to pick up our game or these progressives. And these are not so much progressives that have moved here from elsewhere. These are homegrown progressives, but they're very organized. They're very tightly knit. They're active on social media. And the locals need to wake up and push back. Well, and here's the thing, right? I mean, I, you describe something that's happened in a lot of places, including my hometown of Chicago, that the suburban Chicago area, which has been completely taken over by the progressive left, and thus so has the state, and places that were once very Republican, even very conservative, are not so much anymore. And I, I think in your piece, you highlight what conservatives often miss, which is, oh, yeah, you look at the vote totals. Meanwhile, the left gets control of the institutions that are future oriented, like your schools, and uh, begins to methodically change the instruction, uh, your local papers, change the news coverage, and over time starts to change minds. So it's not just the imports. It's uh, you can have the homegrown progressive movement like you're describing in East Tennessee. Oh, and it's happening in the churches. It's happening churches in the nonprofits. Too. So a lot of Americans think that if they vote the right way for president or for their congressman and in Maryville, where I live, we've been represented in Congress by a Republican since the Civil War. 
they think then that means everything is going to be okay. What they don't realize is that very little of what affects your daily life takes place in Washington, D.C., or even in our state capital in Nashville. Most of what affects you on a day-to-day basis takes place in your city, in your county, and that that's what you need to spend more time paying attention to because these people affect your public safety, what's going on in your library, what's going on in your schools, and the education establishment, uh, you know, they don't think like you do, that uh, they believe that the taxpayers exist to service them rather than vice versa. No, it, it's, it's interesting, too, because they just have a different attitude. I mean, the left is, uh, the, the, the ideological leftists like we're talking about, they have no problem staking out a minority position uh, and relentlessly prosecuting it while pursuing political power to methodically impose it as the majority view. And, and I mean, we've just seen that throughout all of our cultural institutions. So I don't, you know, it's a sort of the complacency that leads people to think, well, our little community is insulated. Meanwhile, there, you know, there's a fifth column action going on in all of your little community institutions. And at the local level, it's very much the case that the squeaky wheel gets the most grease and loud uh, vocal minorities can uh, intimidate local elected officials into doing their bidding. And all it takes is for conservatives and the silent majority to speak up, to write letters to the editor, to send emails to the local elected officials, to show up for city council meetings, to let their opposition be known. Because at least where I live, the numbers overwhelmingly favor our point of view, yet we're being pushed around by this uh, fringe, really, and it, it, it makes no sense to me. Well, I mean, they uh, come dressed in sheep's clothing, right? This is just about being uh, anti-racist. This is about, uh, about diversity. This is about uh, goods. It's not about imposing will. It's not about uh, changing your life. It's not about doing anything that you don't already support. Of course, of course, you, you don't want to be considered a racist, do you? Well, then you go along. And people, Midwest nice, uh, Southern nice, Tennessee nice. So, well, OK. I mean, that seems reasonable. I don't want to be a racist. I'm not a racist. So I guess I should go along. And we're here in the middle of the Bible Belt and People are very compassionate, and that compassion gets exploited by these leftist activists who, for instance, recently want to uh, turn our very nice public library into a uh, de facto homeless shelter. And a lot of people, their initial instinct is compassion towards the homeless instead of thinking, how is this going to ruin our library? And are we going to be feel safe uh, having our children use this library if it's full of bums and derelicts? And so you have to use common sense and uh, and sometimes uh, push back against these these people really exploit the niceness of the of the uh, residents of this area. And uh, I think it's it's almost predatory the way they exploit it. And and this is, uh, again, I think a failure of not just uh, the education system, but also, as you mentioned, the churches, too, because. People who are Christian and want to live a good Christian life should know the difference between real compassion and sentimentality. And what they prey on is people who don't know that difference. And a lot of these ministers in certain denominations, the Methodists in particular, have become social justice warriors. They they preach from the pulpit things that are indistinguishable from what you might hear in some uh, woke sociology class uh, at the local college. He is Mark Pulliam, contributing editor to Law and Liberty, who blogs at misruleoflaw.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, speaking of the culture war, 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. 
The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. Nobody except biologist and evolutionary theorist Brett Weinstein, who appeared in the film No Safe Spaces to issue this warning about political correctness running amok. If this is allowed to continue, it is going to work its way into the entire apparatus of government, journalism, maybe most seriously into the tech sector, which has become the governance apparatus for the new public square. YouTube and Google, Facebook and Twitter dictate whose voices can be heard. And if those entities start trying to engineer the conversation to adhere to the rules laid out with these phony Trojan horse terms, disaster will be the result. You need to see the full movie No Safe Spaces today for a preview of the politically correct dangers facing America as the Biden-Harris era begins this week. Just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do, and you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show it's just 100 days president-elect joe biden has big plans when he gets in office with respect to covid as he so explained and keep following what we know works One of our 100-day challenges is to mask up everyone the day we're inaugurated. I'm going to ask you to mask up for the next 100 days. This is not a political issue. And I will issue an executive order to require masks where I have the authority to do that. In federal worker, for federal workers, in federal property, on interstate travel, like trains and planes. We'll also be working with mayors and governors in red states and blue states and require ma- and ask them to require masking up in their cities and their states. Now, this is not political, but if you don't abide it, you're unpatriotic. I know it's become a partisan issue, but what a stupid, stupid thing for it to happen. This is a patriotic act. We're asking you. We're in a war with this virus. And experts saying have shown that wearing a mask from now until April will save as many as 50,000 lives. Quite frankly, it was shocking to see members of the Congress while the Capitol was under siege by a deadly mob of thugs refusing to wear a mask while they were in secure locations. If you haven't familiarized yourself with Andy Slavitt in a few years, uh, he's a veteran of the Obama administration. You really should. He's uh, Joe Biden's newly minted senior advisor on COVID. And uh, he's been tweeting a lot about COVID over the last uh, many months. Things like this, the uh, major objection to uh, people following the lockdowners orders, people who think uh, their rights are being infringed upon. But on the way to Walmart, they had to drive 30 miles an hour. They couldn't park in a handicapped space and they can't just eat the cheese balls in the store. Their rights can't harm others. Mm-hmm. That's what he thinks about you. Also, um, he um, suggested that was a joke, but he's also the same guy who tweeted out, the CDC has changed their recommendation to now say to just send your kids to school. The CDC has fallen so far. The document is sad. So if you like lockdowners and you don't like seeing your kids, you're going to love Andy Slavitt and the Biden COVID response team. 
For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by James Bovard, author of numerous books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, frequent contributor to The Hill, and contributing editor for American Conservative. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on. So uh, it's just 100 days, Jim. Ah, Yeah, well, I I mean, there are circumstances where it makes sense to wear a mask, but the county government here in Maryland was uh, basically trying to dictate people had to have a mask every time they stepped outside to walk their dog. And it's like, you know, this is pandemic security theater, and it's a signal of submission to your bureaucratic superiors. And and that's not going to keep us safe. There's something else, too, just uh, and this, I guess, needs to be sussed out. Maybe one of those enterprising reporters uh, in D.C. will ask uh, President Biden this when he is inaugurated. The CDC said that even if you're vaccinated, you have to wear masks, social distance and wash your hands and so forth. So it doesn't sound like it's just 100 days. It's uh, in perpetuity. If you're immune to the virus, you still have to follow these protocols and pretend you're not. Well, yeah, uh, last I checked, we're still on the 14 days to flatten the curve, and the first year anniversary is coming up on that. It's hard to tell what the people in charge want to do and how far and how long they want to stretch their power, but the science and data have changed so often, and so much of the data is complete crap. It doesn't make sense to give absolute deference to these people. Biden last August said that he would uh, impose a national economic shutdown. He backed away from that during the campaign because it kind of looked bad. But uh, we got no idea what he's going to do. It's something else, too. Uh, Tony Fauci over the weekend on Meet the Press essentially suggested, you know, we don't know if um, the vaccines will be as effective against the covid mutations as they were against uh, covid SARS-2. And so we'll just have to see. It's interesting. Uh, Fauci always expresses uh, less than moral certitude when it's in the direction of extending these policies we're talking about, you know, because we don't know, we're going to have to continue this because we don't know we're looking at a return to normalcy, not the end of summer, not fall, maybe 2022, maybe mid 2022. You know, they're always extending out uh, their projections about uh, when some of these restrictions uh, uh, that have been imposed by lockdowners can be relaxed. Um, and, and, And again, their lack of, certitude always seems to fall in one direction. Yeah, well, they're always happy to give the government the benefit of the doubt and give the government more power and act like, you know, if we only grovel a little bit more, then we'll finally all be safe. But it hasn't worked. You had the lockdowns. The states that did severe lockdowns have been ravaged worse than Florida, which has been very mild in its restrictions. So you don't read that in the Washington Post. Instead, it's all just, well, you know, if we submit, we'll be safe. On a related story of with respect to safetyism, if you will, what's your uh, reaction to the response that we've seen in terms of uh, the deploy uh, deployment of the National Guard, the uh, armored vehicles in D.C. in preparation for the inauguration? Uh, same thing with boarding up of state capitals and so forth. Is this all just uh, out of an abundance of caution and and strikes you as proportional or uh, ah, or not? Ah, ah. That's a great phrase. Wait a minute. This is a rough one. No, this is absurd. I mean, <laughs> uh, there was a ruckus at the Capitol. You had one person shot and killed. She was shot by a Capitol policeman. That was the only gunfire that day. And yet you got the Washington Post saying, my God, the threat of violent extremism. So we got to bring in the military and basically shut down the entire inauguration. Free speech is totally destroyed for this inauguration. For the first time maybe ever in the U.S., you have this massive military presence. This is something, something which, which looks like a, like a Kremlin May Day parade, 
instead of the American inauguration. Biden will not be speaking to the uh, to people. There's going to be 190,000 flags that are put up, which he can look at as he reads from the teleprompter. I think this is going to be an absolute fiasco. Americans haven't paid attention yet to how this is going to go down. The optics are going to be a disaster. Well, there is um, there are some heroes in this story, at least according to uh, the D.C. press corps uh, from uh, Yahoo, uh, how the world's biggest tech companies are working to prevent more violence on Inauguration Day. Big tech, again, uh, writing to the rescue, you know, because Airbnb is not taking new reservations, canceling existing ones in D.C. during Inauguration Week. Etsy is prohibiting sellers from listing items that promote hate or violence, according to them. Facebook is uh, taking the lead and uh, moving against content on the platform related to the riot. Twitter, of course, following suit. So so the good news, uh, James, is we have uh, big tech companies uh, keeping us safe. You know, I'm just glad that we'll finally be a hate-free nation. I mean, it's too bad it won't have any speech or um, won't have any controversy, but there's so much servility, and the media is cheering on a lot of this suppression. But it's but these are dominoes, and it's like a lot of the liberals think that they can restore faith in the system by totally suppressing any criticism. It's not going to work. People already distrust the government. And uh, I think that, that as soon as people get a closer look at Biden and see him speaking more often, it won't be pretty. Well, it's not just suppression, as uh, you write about over at, uh, uh, I think it was at AIE, yeah, American Institute of Economic Research, I, think, I believe. Um, it's not just suppression. It's uh, also the need to you know, purge the bad actors. Yes. Uh, and there's, there's a push-button hysteria on that. And, and there's just so many people that are just hate other people who aren't as frightened as they are and hate people who haven't submitted to the latest government command be it face mask or this or that, whatever. Yeah, hate people who aren't as frightened as they are. I think that's a really good way to put it. James Bovard, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, frequent contributor to The Hill, contributing editor for American Conservative as well. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Picking up on a conversation we were having earlier, another video circulating over the weekend that seems to be of a kind that what uh, was reported to have happened on January 6th was um, not what we're going to understand happened when all of the evidence is laid bare. John Sullivan over at JustTheNews.com and others suggesting that. Obviously, I'm not talking about the assault on the Capitol. That happened. I'm talking about the responsible parties and uh, the response of some of those responsible parties in the moment. And so this video I'm referring to has that uh, that Vike, the guy, that clown wearing a Viking helmet, walking down the aisle of the House chamber... There's another guy who shouldn't be in the Capitol sitting down, leaning back against the rostrum. And he apparently is bleeding, got hit with something. And then there's another clown uh, on the uh, dais. But the key here is walking behind Viking helmet guy is a Capitol police officer. And uh, this is um, the uh, audio from that video. Hey, man. Glad to see you guys. You guys are patriots. Look at this guy. He's got covered in blood. God bless you. You good, sir? Do you need medical attention? I'm good, thank you. All right. 
I got shot in the face. Where are they? I got shot in the face with some kind of plastic bullet. Any chance I could get you guys yeah. to leave the Senate wing? We will. I've been making sure they ain't disrespecting the place. Okay, I just want to let you guys know this is like the <laughs> sacredest place. Uh, Senate, I think I said House. But you hear the Capitol Police officer, he sees the guy, he's bloody, so he says, can I get you medical attention, then can I get you guys to leave? And, and I'm not necessarily blaming the Capitol Hill, the Capitol Police officer here. You don't really have the context. He's one guy, there's three guys there, whatever's going on outside at that moment that that was happening, I don't know. So he's trying path of least resistance to get people to peaceably leave. Uh, okay, fine. But you're telling me those guys were about to take over our government? I mean, what, what exactly and who exactly that's uh, precipitated the response, as we were discussing earlier, to uh, the uh, and, and the preparation that we've seen for Inauguration Day on Wednesday? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Nick Rowan, who covers the Supreme Court at the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Nick, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So, so what about, you know, what our evolving understanding is of January 6th and how that informs what's happening on January 20th with the inauguration? The fact of the matter is that after the National Guard rolled in, there are so many people there that it would be impossible for anyone to break in. But that's not really the point. The point is to scare people away from even showing up. Not that these sort of people would be able to to put down an insurrection in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the deterrent effect, and to some extent that's all well and good. But I wonder if there's also a desire by some, even including in, in, in the Trump administration, as he is preparing his departure to Mar-a-Lago, to uh, advance this idea that um, the great threat to our republic is uh, Trump voters uh, assailing the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, the video that you just played and other videos show that the guys who came into the Capitol, maybe they're Trump supporters, maybe they just happened to be there at that time, but did they have a plan it didn't appear so. I mean, they were dropping F-bombs and taking selfies. Uh, they, they were not serious people. Right. And, and so then so the, the, the commentary about trying to uh, take over our democracy and it was a it was a, a, a insurrection. I mean, I, I go back to what uh, George Washington law professor Jonathan Turley said in the immediate uh, aftermath, which is, you know, it was it was more of a desecration than it was some sort of coup d'etat that seems to be increasingly a better descriptor, even though there does seem to be some evidence. The FBI has a conspiracy investigation going on, maybe a prosecution coming. Obviously, 100 people plus have been arrested. There just does seem perhaps to be have have done have been some planning by some. But I mean, nothing on the order of what is being described by the left in terms of a threat to the republic. Oh, no, not not at all. I mean, this is just an attempt to kick Trump and support and his supporters while they're down. You know, what happened on January 6th, it's unlikely that uh, that President Trump was trying to incite that. What occurred was the result of, you know, of a mob thinking and, and probably a few people who really did want to do some harm in the Capitol. You know, we've seen you've seen videos of people being bashed with blunt instruments sure. yeah. and not to discount any of that. It's horrible. Um, but no, of course, I mean, a desecration is uh, is a much more apt descriptor than, uh, than this failed coup attempt. They just don't want protesters to show up. You know, they don't they don't want people who are still diehard Trump fans or just hate Biden to to show up and picket this thing. Um, and they want to be able to score as many political points as they can with this inauguration. And having twenty five thousand National Guardsmen 
uh, crawling all over Washington, D.C. is a really great way to do that. Uh, when we come back with Nick Rowan, I want to switch gears and talk about what uh, the Delaware Way may tell us about the Biden administration. Uh, more with Nick Rowan, who covers the Supreme Court at the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Nick Rowan. He covers the Supreme Court at the WashingtonExaminer.com. And uh, Nick, uh, tell us about um, the Delaware Way. What is the Delaware Way, as uh, Joe Biden understands it, and uh, and uh, and how could that be influential in terms of how he how he governs as president of the United States? Sure. The Delaware Way uh, is something that goes back hundreds of years in Delaware. Delaware, of course, is uh, the first state and I believe one of the smallest states. Um, and it's it's so small that everyone in politics in Delaware basically knows everyone else. You know, you've only got a few big cities. You've got Dover, Wilmington, um, and that's about it. And uh, and the Delaware way, as Biden understands it, is everyone in the state gets together. They hash things out because they're friends. They all know each other. They're all on the same playing field. And in theory, it sounds really great. And, and it's something that Biden spoke about a lot early in his campaign, especially when, you know, before he launched things. He, he spoke of how there is a Delaware way and that we need to we need more of this in the country. We need. Uh, less hatred. We need more people speaking as friends. We need more cooperation with each other. And, and that all sounds great in theory. Uh, and when, when Biden is in front of a crowd or in a room, he's got, you know, he's got a real energy and he can get people going uh, and, and really believe in this stuff. But the, the reality of the Delaware way is it's, it's not as pretty. Uh, it's, well, it's, a, it's a sort of country club style of politics. If, if you have a a group of friends running people uh, running the country, then, you know, some people might accuse that of cronyism. And in Delaware, it certainly has been. The state uh, up until recently was run almost completely by the DuPont family, which uh, runs, of course, the DuPont Corporation headquartered in Wilmington. They make chemicals, uh, gunpowder, uh, rubbers, all sorts of different things. And, uh, and, and this is, this is sort of where, where Biden got his start in politics and, and where he's learned uh, how to be a politician. He learned that you needed to have uh, good personal relationships with the millionaires running DuPont Corporation. Uh, so his, his, uh, his Senate staff was consistently uh, made up of former DuPont employees. He you know, would secure favors for them. And, and this, of course, uh, uh, has the style of politics has uh, transferred over into his term as vice president. Uh, which, you know, came back to bite him uh, in this most recent campaign, uh, especially with his son's uh, dealings. Well, it, it's yeah, right. It's sort of the hay, hail fellow, well met, uh, uh, you know, non-ideological, uh, figure out where the wind is blowing and try to meander in that direction, which also not just punctuated his, uh, his, his, his tenure as vice president, but also his, his three decades in the Senate. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is about 
Biden is, um, and, and this is why I believe he was able to secure the uh, the nomination uh, in 2020 over the rest of the Democrats, is that he has consistently been willing to just go along with whatever the party tells him to do, whatever the party line is, he'll adopt it. You know, we saw this dramatically uh, in 2019 when he uh, flipped on the Hyde Amendment, you know, uh, the uh, federal uh, abortion funding amendment. Uh, Previously, when the Democratic Party had a bigger tent uh, outlook on abortion, uh, you know, Biden was always in favor of the uh, Hyde Amendment. And then, of course, in 2019, when the party decided that that was no longer its position, he was more than willing to flip just to get along. It's so interesting to, to think about Delaware and, and, and DuPont in particular. I mean, uh, I think of when Pete DuPont ran for president of the United States in 1988. And, and frankly, I, I think of that and I think of Saturday Night Live spoofing Pete DuPont and with Bob Dole as uh, uh, being played by Dan Aykroyd. And Pete DuPont, I think, was played by Kevin Nealon. And the whole joke was, your name's Pierre. It's not Pete. It's Pierre. The whole idea of elitism, <laughs> right, right. right, of elitism right. In, in, in the DuPont family and this sort of bipartisan elitism that Joe Biden has always benefited from is exactly what the country has been revolting against and, and including in different ways, even within his own party from some of the, the energy of the backbenchers in his own party that want to go hard left in a more radical way against sort of the go along, get along, compromising Democrats of yore like Joe Biden. So it's it's really interesting if he thinks he can bring that same culture to D.C. in this moment. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, he's clearly trying, you know, you look at who he stocked his cabinet with, um, you know, it's, he's, he's picked Merrick Garland, who's who's a copper, who was a compromise choice for the Supreme Court or um, Anthony Blinken, uh, who's, you know, is well known as a moderate in D.C. Um, you see that that Biden is really trying to to bring back the old you know, centrist consensus of the Democratic Party. And that's just really um that's that's where the old guard of the party is trying to keep things. Uh, and, and 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 who knows, maybe they'll be successful uh, for Biden's presidency. But he is he is sort of a dinosaur, you know, a vestige of the way that the that the party used to work. Yeah. And 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 in a sort of so Garland was a compromise candidate. And I, I suggest maybe Kamala Harris was a compromise running mate to serve oh, sure. to serve where the energy of the party is today. And so he's, you know, sort of tried to populate the administration with a combination of compromises to one faction or another faction. But over and 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 some of the factions are pleased and many of them are not. Um, you know, Pete Buttigieg, as secretary of transportation, sort of screams that as well. But uh, sure. yeah. but 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 it, that that that's tough. To go, it's really going to be tough to hold them together by uh, you know, th- through through just a handful of appointments or sort of and, and being able to point to uh, representatives of their particular perspective or their particular identity. That's a tough way to, to govern over four years. For sure. And I mean, this is something that um, for Biden when you don't govern on principle, you're just going to get dragged. Um, you're, you're just going to get dragged whichever way uh, the party wants you to go. And I don't think that this, uh, this compromise situation is going to work out uh, for holding the center. I think it's going to inevitably drag left. You look at Harris, uh, she ran to the left of Biden and, and you know, became the, 
the compromise candidate uh, mid last year. But I would predict that we would see her, her drag it to the left um, once we get down into the presidency. He is Nick Rowan. He covers the Supreme Court at the WashingtonExaminer.com. Nick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, want to direct your attention to the updated uh, chart of the century. Uh, nobody does chart porn like uh, Mark Perry over at Carpe Diem blog at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Mark Perry also. University of Michigan economics professor and uh, this chart that he has been posting of price changes in selected U.S. consumer goods, services and wages over the course of the last 20 years. He updated per the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics report on CPI price data through December of last year through the end of the year. And what he does is chart this. I'll, I'll tweet it out at Dan Prof Show so you see it, but uh, I can describe it generally speaking, the takeaways from it, which are key. But uh, looking at, so what's happened over 20 years, 20, 2002 to the end of last year, end of 2020, hospital services, college tuition and fees, college textbooks, medical care services, child care and nursery school, average hourly wages, housing, food and beverages versus things like new cars, household furnishings, clothing, cell phone services, computer software, toys, TVs. Uh, just uh, listening to that rundown, can you figure out what might be the difference with the one basket of goods and services versus the other basket of goods and services. Mm -hmm. Well, just to put a fine point on it, give you a couple of examples. One basket of goods and services, more expensive over the last 20 years. For example, hospital services are plus 203%. College tuition plus 170%. Uh, medical care services plus 117%. Child care plus 106%. By contrast, the other basket of goods and services, TVs down 97% in terms of price, toys down 73%, computer software down 70%, cell phone service down 40%. And uh, the only thing that's new is uh, recently college textbooks have actually slightly declined, but they're still, again, 151% over the course of the, uh, the last decade. The biggest takeaway, the greater the degree of government involvement in the provision of a good or service, the greater the price increases, hospital and medical costs, college tuition, child care, the lower the degree of government involvement and the, in, in the provision of a good or service, the more the price decreases, software, electronics, toys, cars, clothing, with both relatively less government funding, minus Tesla and regulation and falling prices. Mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward. And so uh, remember what Bastiat suggests, that you look at everything through the eyes of the consumer. That's how you should judge good economic policy. You're increasing the purchasing power for the average man, woman, and family. When government is uh, the middleman or the director of the sector, you have exponential price increases, far outpassing wage growth, far outpassing inflation. When it's the market, we just told you, 
Uh, maybe this is a simple sort of economics in one lesson, Henry Hazlitt, that people can understand. Please share this to uh, the young Marxist in your life to get them uh, off of the pablum that is being pushed and will continue to be pushed over the next four years by the Biden administration and, frankly, so many governors and mayors around the country. This is Dan Prost. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at uh, danprofshow.com, at Dan Prof, and at Dan Prof Show on social media. And uh, as we uh, near the end of the Trump presidency, the White House released a list of Trump administration accomplishments uh, before COVID-19. They note America plus 7 million jobs, middle income family income increased by nearly $6,000, more than five times the gains during the Obama administration unemployment rate uh, dipped down to three and a half percent, the lowest in 50 years. You know, all this additionally um, on the score of income inequality, which uh, the left obsesses about the bottom 50 percent of American households saw a 40 percent increase in net worth. Wages rose fastest for low income and blue collar workers, 16 percent pay increase. Uh, black American home ownership increased from 41.7 percent to 46.4 percent. But of course, that was all pre-pandemic, and uh, an assessment, an honest assessment of the Trump administration so that we can think about this going forward when the next virus hits, uh, has to include the administration's response to the pandemic. On the minus side is that President Trump went along with the lockdowns and undid so much of what had been happening in his first three years, didn't he? You can provide the explanation, the rationalization, why he uh, was compelled to do what he did to go along with it for as long as he did. But the results are the results and the decisions were the decisions. And for the uh, a future president to be faced with the same challenge and the same pressures and the same charlatans, there have to be lessons to be learned from what's transpired, aren't there? Uh, to help us with that question, we're pleased to be joined by John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. So um, how, how do you assess the, the Trump administration, his record on all things uh, economics-related? Uh, do you look at it as uh, three years and then the last year, or do we assess it uh, – over the course of the last four years and draw some overarching conclusions? Yeah, no, I, I think you have to say that it was a fairly successful presidency economically. I, obviously, I have problems with the stuff on immigration and trade, but I think if you looked at his overall record and said, oh, this was Rand Paul's, I think a lot of when you look at ending a lot of the forward adventurism, lowering taxes, they didn't reduce taxes nearly enough. They kept them too high and, in fact, raised them on the rich. All the deregulation, handing over um, uh, judicial appointments to the federal, federal society, these are things that libertarians want forever. So you can make a strong argument for them. 
but as you allude, he panicked. It's as simple as that. And let's be clear, these are 50 autonomous states. I understand that. But let's try a brief counterfactual. What if Trump had said there is no way the nation I lead is going to fight a, a virus with economic contraction? And so while states are free to do as they wish, I will campaign daily in every state that has taken away the right of its citizens to work and produce and businesses to open. And this will be paid for in November of 2020. I think he's still president today. And I would add, I think he gives a lot of governors around the country cover to not do the damage they did. I think he gives world leaders the cover to not lock down on the way to a much better economic situation for people around the world. Uh, Now, what are you looking forward to from the Biden administration? Uh, It seems like the response from the left, uh, as one would expect, is the only problem with uh, the Trump administration's profligate spending was it wasn't enough. And uh, on tax policy, of course, uh, he went in the wrong direction, reducing taxes rather than raising them. And so that's what we're going to do. Yeah, uh, Biden, I wish someone and what I've argued is what his top donors will not tell him is that raising taxes on the rich isn't just about work disincentives. I think our side probably overstates that. Um, I think all three of us right here would work no matter what. We just can't get enough of what we do. I, I think that Jeff Bezos would work ferociously even if Bernie Sanders were president. But what we can't leave out is that there are no businesses and there are no jobs without investment first. And so when you tax work, when you tax investment at higher rates, which is what Biden wants to do, you're shrinking the amount of wealth available to fund new ideas, to fund new advances. And so um, if he makes going after the rich uh, the goal of his administration, it's not that he'll fail. Look, um, people, Americans are wildly productive people, but he would have a much better economy if he recognized that the quickest way to grow the economy is to reduce the burden on those who have the most unspent wealth, as in the rich, because it's investment that drives growth, not consumption. With respect to uh, Biden's $1.9 trillion relief bill, it includes uh, – I don't know if it includes more funding for uh, gender programs in Pakistan. Gosh, I sure hope so. But I know it does include uh, another $1,200 check for uh, Americans under a certain income threshold. Uh, it includes uh, rent forbearance until September of this year. Uh, so uh, what do you think about that as a way to get us back on our feet here? But by definition, it's going to shrink or slow the recovery. Uh, for one, it's a non sequitur. Uh, was anyone calling for relief plans in February of 2020? No, when people weren't locked down. See, when people are free, their natural state is growth. And so the only answer to a lack of growth is to set people free. But lots of states still don't want to do it, and, and the Biden administration certainly doesn't want to help that process. And so that's the only answer. Uh, More broadly, once again, what is the Biden administration seeking to do? It's seeking to do what the Trump administration tried to do. Let's just put money in people's pockets because consumption will drive growth. No, investment drives growth. They're extracting yet another $2 trillion from the economy. Keep in mind, the last budget of Bill Clinton in his administration was $1.8 trillion. So they're extracting another $2 trillion to basically take from those with the most – and give it to those who will just spend, spend, spend. And, and that, that doesn't drive economic growth. That just limits investment. And there's something else about that, too, those uh, checks. Um, it turns out that um, the uh, economics is pretty clear on this. People don't make uh, long-term spending decisions based on short-term income bumps. And so 
It didn't work for Bush. It didn't work for Obama. Uh, the evidence suggests that the uh, $2,000 this spring didn't work. Uh, it's not stimulative. And so neither will the 600 at the end of the year, and neither will this 1200 It doesn't work that way. It, it never works that way. If it did, the Fed would have fixed economic growth in Baltimore and Cairo, Illinois, and East St. Louis yesterday. They could just do a helicopter drop of money. Hmm. What drives economic growth is people. And people do best when they're taxed and regulated the least, when they're free to trade with anyone, regardless of what country they're from, when they have a currency they can, they can trust, and when investment is plentiful. And so you're not – people matched with capital drive economic growth, and yet the Biden administration's plan is to tax those with the most, the most capable of investing, and also tax the, the most productive. Well, you don't, you don't get more growth. By, by penalizing those those with the ability to grow the most. Uh, overall, though, in terms of uh, the broad strokes of what was included in this platform, uh, some of the moves that are already being telegraphed by House and Senate Democrat socialists, uh, at a time when we're 9 million jobs down from where employment was a year ago, I mean, can, can we have a quote-unquote jobless recovery or something approximating that? Can we see growth when you have... Uh, you know, a patchwork of states in this country still effectively shut down, including some of the big ones and the big major metropolitan areas? Well, it's, it's going to be hard to grow now, but let's be clear, once these, these lockdowns end and what's ridiculous can't last forever, the growth is going to resume quickly. And so I think there will be a recovery. Let's also remember that even with the loss, that basically the sense in the tie is the it's going to be very difficult based on that for the Democrats to do too much, and that's Biden uh, Just You can't make big policy gestures that wreck the economy 50-50 when you lost 14 seats in the House, when the Republicans flipped 14 seats in the House. And so you could make an argument, a fairly bold argument, that we're going to have a, a fair amount of gridlock no matter what watch is going to be good for growth. The less that Washington does, it's just kind of a statement of the obvious. When policy risk Washington is lower, the ability of, of people to purchase and invest in work is, is, is much greater. He is John Tamney, editor of RealCareMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of the book, The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John Tamney, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we're seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show mansion and mar joe mansion and bill mar uh one over the weekend mar according to some, extended a bit of an olive branch to Trump supporters. I'm not so sure that's true. And Manchin, according to some, is uh, the Praetorian guard for Western civilization. 
the mo- the one moderate Democrat who is going to uh, hold the line so that the left doesn't just run roughshod over the Constitution and the country because he said that he would not uh, support discarding the filibuster. And uh, Joe Manchin was on firing line with Margaret Hoover, who, by the way, I, what a uh, what a disappointment uh, in terms of trying to reboot the great firing line program as presided over by Bill Buckley and having such a thin intellect as Margaret Hoover. It's, a, it's just the interviews are awful. And so was the one with Joe Manchin. But nonetheless, uh, it's noteworthy what Manchin had to say about Howley and Cruz. And it, go back, it goes back to this conversation we were having about the agitprop being pushed by the left, regardless of the underlying evidentiary or logical basis. Joe Manchin on expelling Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley from the Senate. Would you support, Senator, the removal of Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz through the 14th Amendment, Section 3? Well, they should look. Absolutely. Basically, that should be a consideration. He should under, you know, he understands that. Ted's a very bright individual, and I get along fine with Ted. But what he did was totally outside of the realm of our responsibilities. Listen to the conversations that people have had. Listen to some of the Congress people that are still speaking. You know, listen around the country, people in different law and, and elected positions. These people, people should be held accountable because it's seditious. What was seditious? Uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, no person shall be a senator, representative in Congress, or elector or vice president or, or, or uh, president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as one of the other officers described, uh, engaged in insurrection or rebellion or gave aid or comfort to the enemies of said insurrection or rebellion. I'm sorry, what did Ted Cruz and Josh Howley do to engage or give aid and comfort to an insurrection or rebellion? The only thing they did is the same thing Democrats have done after every Republican uh, who's been elected president was elected president in the 21st century, which is exercise their legal right under a 140-year-old federal statute to lodge an objection to the electoral certification. In point of fact, Ted Cruz's uh, objection came sort of in the form of a middling, I'm not trying to overturn the election. I want a commission to you know, explore the unresolved allegations that are substantive in nature of election irregularities. They should be expelled from the Senate for doing the same things that Durbin and Schumer did after George W. Bush was reelected in 2004. And this is the guy you want to entrust the protection of Western civilization to? Uh, Again, agitprop, projection, conjuring in the American mind that the great threat to our republic, our democracy under siege by a handful of knuckleheads who assaulted the Capitol and 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 two senators, by the way, they weren't the only two, but two senators who led different 
objections to the electoral certification as provided under federal law? What? The healing and reconciliation, huh? Expel them from the Senate, something to be looked at. And you think Joe Manchin is going to stand up when the time is called? We'll see. Bill Maher, on his uh, intolerable show, I only watched this riff because so many people were uh, discussing it and suggesting that, uh, oh, you know, Bill Maher is uh, chastising the left. Was he? Here's how it started. But you got to wait a little bit. You got to let this breathe a little bit before you celebrate it. Let's not confuse 5,000 people with 74 million. Excuse me. Yes, even even supporting the insurrection in spirit is, well, deplorable. But there's a difference between holding illiberal beliefs and acting violently on them. At least that's what they always told me about Islamic terrorism. I keep wrestling on this show with the hard question of how do Americans, all of us, learn to share a country with assholes you can't stand? I've preached, and still do, that you can hate Trump, but not all the people who like him. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, he continued uh, taking up the issue of Ashley Babbitt's killing at the Capitol. And see if you think that this is still an open hand rather than a closed fist. She was an Air Force vet who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and she lost her life trying to prevent Biden from becoming president, even though she had voted for the Obama-Biden ticket not that long ago. But somehow she came to believe that if Joe became president, horses full of Greeks would rape our women and Georgia would go communist. (laughs) She is the tragedy of the modern Republican voter personified, pissed off at the greed and corruption that, yes, has squeezed the middle class hard, but always coming up with the wrong answer to who is doing most of this squeezing. She was in financial trouble because in order to keep her business afloat, she resorted to a short-term loan with an interest rate of 169%. That's right. She was being charged 169% interest and went to Washington so she could chant, stop the steal. (laughs) She died for a second Trump term, even though that would have solved exactly none of her problems. The same mistake made by all of her friends in the Waffle House Brigade. (laughs) Guys, you are storming the wrong building. The... Now he's inciting violence. The uh, feet up shouldn't have been on Pelosi's desk. They should have been on Trump's tanning bed. I uh, see. Uh, it's easy to point out the hypocrisy of the left, which is what Bill Maher does. And it's, he's trying to do that to position himself as some conciliator. Uh, but is it real? Uh, I, there's some tells in there like the Waffle House Brigade, he is not limiting that characterization to those who breached the Capitol any more than the D.C. press corps is limiting their characterization of Trump supporters to uh, as violent extremists to those who breached the Capitol. Yeah, that, that is not an open hand from Bill Maher. Don't be fooled. And it's certainly not from Joe Manchin. 
if he thinks that uh, Cruz and Howley should be treated as seditionists. This is Dan Proff. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, James O'Keefe and the Project Veritas folks are... On Twitter's case again, well, they haven't gotten off of Twitter's case. They released some audio of Jack Dorsey. Boy, that guy. It's remarkable that he is this multi-billionaire because listening to him talk, he uh, comes across as a complete dolt, he, as an automaton. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we discussed some of what he had to say and the conflicting message embedded within last week. And now Project Veritas has some audio of Vijaya Gadi. Uh, she is Twitter's legal policy and trust and safety lead. That looks lovely on a young person's business card. Uh, here's what she had to say about, uh, you know, going beyond uh, the Trump ban and uh, being more aggressive in uh, censoring content on Twitter. She said one of the interesting things is a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last week is work that we've built on in other places around the world where we've seen violence unfold as a result of either misleading information or coded rhetoric. Mm, Code breakers over at Twitter. Something else about that, too. They make no distinction and she makes no distinction in her comments between America and the rest of the world, even though our U.S. our Constitution does make the U.S. quite distinct in comparison to other countries around the world. And even though uh, the First Amendment is a restraint on government, as we've talked about at some length, there is this issue of cultural and social norms informed by our founding documents, reflective of the kind of society that a free people should want to live in. Hmm. Certainly what the founders had in mind. Uh, here's uh, Miss uh, Gotti talking about uh, Twitter's big plans. There's also been a lot of questions about retros, um, and um, uh, of course we're going to do a retro. I mean, we're, we're, we're in the midst of a retro around the election generally. This will be most definitely folded into it. What we saw Wednesday morning was really concerning to us, obviously, so uh, a small team gathered from Trust and Safety. We were discussing um, the potential for violence to happen and we decided to uh, escalate our enforcement of the civic integrity policy and use um, a label that disabled engagements um, to stop the spread of potentially inflammatory um, content, which is the content around uh, election interference, election fraud, stealing the election, uh, that type of thing. We think that the severity of what's happening on the ground, coupled with the information that's contained in these tweets, this misleading information about the election being stolen, um, and the massive fraud around the election are what is changing our analysis of how we should enforce this policy. Um, it is a much more severe violation 
um, given what we're seeing on the ground. We've made the decision yesterday that we are going to actually um, be more aggressive in our enforcement beyond deamplification. We are actually going to, for accounts that are primary purpose, um, spreading QAnon theories, we are going to, conspiracy theories, we are going to be permanently suspending those accounts. We are doing everything that we can to ensure that Twitter is being used in a positive way, that positively affects society. You don't even need the uh, background music bed that uh, Project Veritas provided for those comments, particularly Dorsey's, to uh, have a chill run down your spine, Winston Smith, do you? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and the author of the recently released 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Peter, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, how about uh, what uh, seem to be Twitter's big plans to build on the banning of uh, Trump from its platform to, uh, you know, uh, getting into anybody who would uh, say a crossword about the 2020 election? Well, it's uh, beyond ominous. I think it's uh, taken us to the point where we realize, I hope, that uh, big tech is in collusion with big government and we are all going to suffer from that. I'm expecting any day now to find uh, myself canceled, not on Twitter, which I don't use, but it doesn't seem to matter which platform you're working on there after all of them. Uh, When we come back, uh, I want to put the question to Peter that I think is the real pressing question for conservatives in 2021 and beyond, which is, what do you do when the private sector in the form of corporate America is more oppressive than the federal government? We'll get Peter's response to that. Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, right after this. Show. We're speaking with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, author of the recently released 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project. And Peter, before the break, my question, what is a conservative to do when corporate America becomes more oppressive and more and more powerful, thus the ability to be more oppressive than the federal government? Uh, we have freely chosen this oppression. So how does one remedy it? Well, there's not going to be much of a short-term remedy available, but the uh, longer term does have options. Uh, First of all, we opt out of the social media wherever we can. Don't use it. Find alternatives. Uh, Divest if you're somebody who has money in these corporations. Get out. Uh, Begin to work in favor of the alternatives. We may have to look offshore for some of those and work hard to try to persuade legislatures to take action. You can't really expect anything to come out of the coming Congress, but state legislatures can act, and they should. So uh, I think what we do is uh, try uh, to rush every exit there is and uh, make sure that uh, there are 
alternatives that emerge as a viable choices. Well, 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 with respect to state legislative action or legislative action generally, I mean, what uh, would you say is consistent with conservative principles and a respect for uh, what private enterprise can do in a free society? This is the rub for conservatives. I, I know in North Dakota there was legislation introduced that would allow North Dakota residents to sue uh, these social media platforms essentially based on uh, the content they curate. Now that's going to run into a supremacy clause issue as long as Section 230 is in force and those protections are afforded to these social media platforms. But you have legislators at the state level at least starting to you know, press the issue. Um, is something like that what you think or or something like what uh, Richard Epstein talked about in his interview in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend treating these social media platforms as common carriers like ra- railroads or public places of accommodation like restaurants? What are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I mean, I actually think both. I think North Dakota provides a great model. I mean, we don't know whether it will withstand legal challenge, but it's a place to begin, and we we play it out, see as far as it can go. Um, the uh, Epstein's approach, to, I think, matters as, a lot as well. We're now dealing with a, a monopolistic part of the economy. You can be in favor of private property and free enterprise, but uh, have some doubts about the way in which uh, a collusive bunch of billionaires working with uh, partners in the government managed to suppress free speech in the country. I don't see any deep conflict of principles there. Um, We're not urging a uh, government takeover of these entities. We simply want to break up their monopolistic power, and they've been misusing it to our disadvantage, so let's fight back. A good uh, piece with some reviews from uh, 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 some good scholars, including Frank Ferruti, but this uh, from Tom Slater, the deputy editor, spiked online. How big tech took over is the question that uh, these uh, deep thinkers kick around. And uh, one of the, uh, some of the quotes from uh, not so long ago are really interesting. Uh, in 2012, Twitter's general manager in Britain, Tony Wang, famously dubbed the social network, quote, the free speech wing of the free speech party. Giving mm-hmm. people a voice is the somewhat more bloodless formulation preferred by Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, describing Facebook, of course, in 1996, John Perry Barlow in his Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace said, quote, we are creating a world where anyone anywhere may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. That didn't last so long. Um, wh- what do you think about what the promise was and and where we are today? Should people... Should people really be surprised? Is this a failure of conservatives to build their own institutions, or, uh, or, or how do you how do you explain what's happened over the last twenty five years? Well, I explain it as the left was all in favor of uh, freedom and opening things up as long as that was opening up opportunities for them to advance their messages. But once they achieved power. They drew the drawbridges up and began to exercise that power coercively. Uh, there's, of course, human nature involved in this. People are selfish, and we're seeing these uh, altruistic, supposedly altruistic institutions show their true colors in their uh, selfishness. Uh, 
I have no doubt that back when uh, Zuckerberg and people like that were saying the things that they were saying, they believed them. But now they believe pretty much exactly the opposite. Uh, they've been dragged into the uh, premises of postmodernism, the idea that you make up your truth as you go along. And if it's different today from yesterday, don't be bothered by small inconsistencies. Uh, how do we respond to this? I think, uh, yeah, there is a failure of conservatives to imagine the dystopia that was coming back then. Um, we now certainly see it. We should have seen it then when social media were providing avenues for uh, some really appalling stuff that is sort of culturally corrosive. Now we are uh, dealing with a politically corrosive version of this. Um, what do we do? Well, the technology is there to invent alternatives. Back uh, uh, 150 years ago when the railroads were creating monopolies, uh, they didn't imagine that there would be another technology coming along soon after, like the automobile, uh, that would uh, obviate the advantages of the uh, uh, monopoly they had and the, the railroads died by the dozens. Uh, I think today's uh, technology, we imagine it's the, the end point of some great bunch of advances. Well, it's not the end point. There will be something else, another kind of Internet, another kind of communication. This thing will die eventually, but I don't really want to wait for it to die. I want to start killing it now or at least channeling it into uh, some uses that are more constructive than a stranglehold on us. And especially on our children, I think, is where this goes. He is Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, author of the recently released 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Peter, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hold on. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, Charles Barkley, Sir Charles, uh, famously said he's not a role model. He wasn't kidding. He uh, offered some commentary recently on vaccines and the prioritization of COVID vaccines. And uh, despite uh, a gallant effort by Kenny Smith to walk him back from the ledge, Charles wasn't having it. Take a listen. Front of the line. We need 300 million shots. I've given 1,000 to some NBA players. What about what about NFL? NFL. I'm just going to raise it. NFL players, hockey players. Uh, listen, as much taxes as these players pay. Let me repeat that. As much taxes as these players pay. They deserve some preferential treatment. Well, uh, for, for life and death? 
Yes. The, the amount of money you make. Uh, no, no. I said taxes. The amount of, I didn't say the amount of money you make. Well, that's I'm right. That's no, no, on no. taxes. That's I'm saying the taxes. amount of taxes these guys pay. No. no. It, we can't go there. No. I, I don't think you could go there. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's a couple of things jarring about that. One is that uh, Charles Barkley doesn't understand that uh, with a graduated income tax, the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. So it is effectively an indication of how much money you make, generally speaking. But did you get the sense of listening to Barkley that uh, so many of these professional athletes, not to mention what you've seen from professional athletes over the last year in particular, so many of these professional athletes have about the same view of their fans as most of the D.C. politicians have of their constituents? <laughs> they really have disdain for them. We should be at the front line now, not to mention, forget even the money thing, you're talking about um, – some of the uh, healthiest people in the world, right? Professional athletes, for the most part, in pretty good shape. Professional athletes, for the most part, young. What do we know about uh, the likelihood of serious illness or death among young people in good shape? And I mean, I guess if Sir Charles wanted to argue, like Johns Hopkins researchers, that uh, actually it makes more strategic sense to inoculate the young first so that you reduce the number of cases, that reduces the spread, and thus reduces the incidence of death. That was one argument that was made. Okay, but of course, that, that is not what Charles Barkley is arguing. Uh, one more uh, quickie on sports and politics. Did you catch the end of the uh, Chiefs-Browns game yesterday? Yeah, the uh, Chiefs fans celebrating that victory, sending them to the AFC Championship game. I saw tomahawk chopping and I heard chanting of a Native American variety. I can only assume that the Chiefs will lose their nickname, that uh, Pat Mahomes will be sidelined for the championship game, and that those fans were taken by Goodell's goons to Goodell's gulags for re-education. So, you know, woke sports, how much disdain they have for their fans. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Stay informed. So you can be courageous and we can live free and join us again tomorrow on the Dan Prop Show. This is the Dan Prof Show.